Today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead here again to have another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. Folks, we are rolling out a brand new segment. We think it's important, given what is happening around the country, given the bloodbath that took place last night with the elections, depending upon which side of the table you find yourself, this new segment, our political news roundtable, is a way to address that. Like, we really want to do politics for all of us, to have a discussion where everybody can participate from a kindergartner all the way up to my grandmother. We want everyone to come and join us at the table. We got the name for this segment from the the best coach in the world, Coach Chauncey Whitehead, my brother from another mother-in-law. Um, and Chauncey mentioned to me this morning that he used to bring his friends together and have what he called politics and pancakes, a conversation about politics for all of us. And so I decided in his honor to rename our political news segment Politics and Pancakes, which means grab a plate, grab a cup of coffee, grab a hot chocolate, grab something to eat, Meet me in front of the radio. Meet me in front of your computer for Facebook. And we can have conversations about politics that matter. I'm going to be joined today by three people. A freelance writer, Trey Lewis, is going to join us from Texas. Dr. Walter Greeson, a professor of history at McAllister, is going to join us. And I'm already joined by Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. Dr. Austin, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited about politics and pancakes uh, and have an opportunity <laughs> to talk through some of the stories that have come up, particularly last night. I want to introduce Dr. Greeson and then get into the conversation. Dr. Walter Greeson is joining us. He is a professor of history, one of the most prominent historians, educators, and urbanists in the United States. He's in the Department of History at McAllister College. How are you, Dr. Greeson? Oh, Dr. K, it's so good to hear your voice. Thank you so much for making a minute for me to join you in conversation today. Absolutely. So you and Dr. Sharon Wright Austin will take us through it. So Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, I have been sad all day thinking about the (laughs) bloodbath that took place in Virginia. So I want to have you frame for us exactly what happened. And then, Dr. Greeson, I want you to talk about how critical race theory became an issue on the table, and it's not even something that should be on the table, but it became a rallying cry. Dr. Austin, we'll start with you. Okay, well, Virginia is just an interesting state because a lot of people thought it had become a blue state, but really it never did. Um, Virginia has elected both Republican and Democratic governors. And the interesting thing in Virginia is that governors can only serve for one term at a time. And then, and that was the case with Terry McAuliffe, uh, who was defeated last night. He had served as, as governor previously, and then, like, you have to get someone else, and then you can later run again. So he was running to serve. You, you can't run uh, and serve the consecutive terms in Virginia. But he was defeated by Doug Youngkin, and one of the main issues was with the school system and with critical race theory, and a lot of uh, parents had formed a group called Parents Matter or Parents Lives Matter, and they were protesting the fact that um, some, some, even books like Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, was one that some people objected to because of the graphic uh, images of slavery, and the belief was that it made kids uncomfortable to have to read about that. So Doug Youngkin really used those types of issues as a major uh, way to get people, get Republicans to really be motivated. And so as a result, he was able to defeat Terry McAuliffe um, in the the governor's race yesterday. But Virginia did elect its uh, first black female Lieutenant Governor, and her, uh, she's a woman named Winsome Sears. She's a Republican, um, a woman of Jamaican descent. Um, and but she is someone I thought it was interesting when I looked at. Um, I'm a member of a, a political organization that mostly um, com- is made up of Black women, and I know I won't call it the group, but I know you're a member of it too. But anyway, I thought it was interesting when <laughs> she was running and they endorsed her opponent. Uh, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing her name, but her opponent's name is uh, Hala Ayala. And so they 
they were endorsing her over, and I'm like, why are we a black woman's political group, but we're not endorsing the black woman? Right. But she is someone who is a Republican. Uh, there's a really interesting picture, if you do a search of her, of her holding like a, like a assault weapon. She's got a Marine Corps background. And she's sort of like a, she always, she was saying, even with, you know, the fact that people have talked about she's the first black female lieutenant governor uh, in Virginia, she was saying that she didn't want to be referred to like that because race doesn't matter. So she's a conservative Republican. But she was able to win, and it was a historic night, whether she wants to acknowledge it or not. So I think that, you know, we could read a lot into Virginia, but it is, I wasn't really all that surprised. Um, I think the thing that was disappointing was that uh, Joe Biden, and also Barack Obama, not only did they endorse Terry McAuliffe, but they also gave speeches and campaign on his behalf. So that is a, a big disappointment, and a lot of people are saying that it's a referendum on the Biden administration, but I don't know if I see it like that. I just think Virginia is just one of those states, sort of like Florida. It's it's not uh, a blue state. It, it's sometimes they elect Republicans, sometimes they elect Democrats, and they've had more Republican than Democratic governors in recent years. So I wasn't really all that surprised by the result. Now, I wanted to speak to what you mentioned about Hala Ayala, um, who was defeated by Winsome Sears. And I, I, I thought the same thing, except I recognize that the support of Hala Ayala wasn't about race. It was about parties. Mm-hmm. Winsome Sears is a Republican. I mean, it's not just that she is someone that's aligned with the Republican Party just for political gain. I mean, she is like a dyed-in-the-red Republican, not right. just holding the weapons, the I will die for America. It's yeah. not about race. I mean, these are things she has actually said. The chance of USA that have surrounded her, that she truly is a part of this new, not not a Douglas Republican, but this new Republican Party. So I can understand the, the women's political group that you're talking about, which leans more towards issues that stand right. with communities of color and with people who are marginalized, why they would support Hala Ayala, the Democratic candidate. Right. I mean, and that's why when I first saw that they, that they were in, endorsing a candidate Ayala over Winsome Sears, I, that's when I did more research on Winston Sears. I'm like, why aren't we endorsing a black woman? I was like, oh, now I see. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's about party, but not even party. It's about just her views and her the, where she stands on issues. So with the group that, that we both support, that's what they do. They elect people on the base. It's not about party. It's about where you stand on issues on of concern issues. to the black community and to black women. And she is someone who... They, they didn't really see her as being one of our allies, is the way I'll say it. And I just want to make a note, and I'm coming to you, Dr. Greeson. Uh, Hala Ayala is, she was one of the first Hispanic women in the state's history to be elected to the House of Representatives, House of Delegates, along with Elizabeth Guzman. So she is a Hispanic woman. So she is definitely, in terms mm-hmm. of a person of color, she does align uh, with the communities that we're talking about. Dr. Greeson, so, so I want you to answer that first. Before we get into this whole thing around critical race theory, can you talk about what you're seeing within the black community? Because I'm making the argument that black folks as voters, as organizers, that we are a lot more politically astute than people give us credit for in terms of choosing oh, no. candidates in line with our vision. Yeah, no. African-Americans, as a matter of survival, have had to cultivate for over a century, almost 150 years, a very critical sense of who they will vote for, how they organize to support candidates, and then how do they actually get the support necessary to put those candidates into office. Um, this tradition of deep political organizing is not just in the black church, it's not just in the civil rights movement. These organizations have cultivated and reflect a deep understanding that our lives are on the line whenever the ballot is available. And especially when the ballot isn't available, how do we organize and still marshal our allies and take action using the levers of government available to us so that we can actually enact some kind of policies that allow us to have a measure of human rights and civil rights in this country? So, no, black black voters, black families are some of the most sophisticated democratic activists in the history of the world. But are we... 
being left behind. So I know that, for example, we, we, we got in line, and I, I said got in line, I said that tongue-in-cheek, Dr. Walter. We got in <laughs> line and voted for Joe Biden, right? Even though there was a diverse slate of candidates from Sister Kamala Harris to Brother Cory Booker and everybody in between. We got in line with the older, seasoned white man who has been around for a long time. Um, and so... In getting in line, that doesn't necessarily mean that our views, our issues are being met. Is that a place where we're falling behind? No, I don't think it's about falling behind because especially I look down ballot at a lot of the local local results that we see. It was an unprecedented victory for African Americans in terms of mayor's offices and, and DAs and people who are serving the majority of African Americans at the local and state level. I think that's a story we need to take out of this, what happened last night. It's not just about this one governor in Virginia. It's about a tremendous change of the base of the Democratic Party that is supporting, affirming, and developing a cadre of leaders that are based in grassroots activism. And it's not just for African Americans. It's also for Asian Americans, Muslim Americans, for folks from the Latinx community. Like, these grassroots are going to bear fruit over time in some very powerful ways, perhaps as early as next year's congressional elections. But we are getting roped into this larger conversation about one state and what happened as a a referendum around this very polarizing issue of education and, and white families. And so we're missing kind of the broader tapestry of a lot of major victories that unfolded last night. Now, I want to come back to you, Dr. Austin, um, because I mentioned about being a Douglas Republican. And so somebody immediately jumped on Facebook Live. like, oh, I asked Dr. K if she was a Frederick Douglas Republican. She said, yes, she never explained what that meant. So I want to just step back and talk about how a Douglas Republican, if you are aligned with that, is very different from the Republican Party today. You have to remember that under Frederick Douglass's time, Lincoln was a pillar of that party. And in his 1880 platform address, Lincoln laid out a whole platform around strengthening the union, abolishing slavery, reconstructing the union, pursuing freedom instead of slavery as a cornerstone for America. That party believed that ensuring citizens' rights are are respected more than making sure that the nation itself gets what it needs. It's about giving people their individual rights. And when I talk about a Douglas Republican, that time period when blacks were in line with the Republican Party, that's a very different party than what we see today. Right. And even the the party of when Jackie Robinson was a Republican, Martin right. Luther King's father, Martin King Sr., was a Republican. Uh, even with that, and even the brand of Republican politics that Colin Powell practiced is different. And even he, at the, at the sort of the, the very end of his life in the last few years, even he sort of has, has criticized the Republican Party and broke ties with them and started to endorse Democratic candidates like Barack Obama. Um, so, I mean, the the party t- today is totally different from the way that it was in the sense that now even when you have African Americans, like Winston Sears, for example, in Virginia, who have done well as Republican candidates, they always tend to be like even further to the right than white right, right-wing people. They tend to have views that are even more conservative. It's almost as if they have to prove themselves um, to, um, to, other, to other Republicans. I use a really interesting book in my, one of my classes called The Loneliness of the Black Republican, and the author is a professor at Harvard. Her name is Leah Wright Rigor, and it's a really interesting book because it talks about just the evolution of the Republican Party and the fact that African Americans used to mostly belong to that party until like the 1930s and then later the 1960s, and how over the years the party didn't really reach out to black voters. Um, and now you're really seeing that because now it's almost as if the, the Republican Party many years ago gave up on the idea of getting black support, and they don't even try to reach out to us. And sometimes they take positions, it's almost as if they're intentionally trying to be hostile toward black voters. So like you said, it's, it's a totally different party now from the, the party of Frederick Douglass. And departed Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells, because Ida right. B. Wells was a Republican at that time. My right. father was someone who was very much in line with the old views of the Republican Party in terms of putting the needs of the citizens first. You know, not necessarily making sure that government is kind of bulldozing into people's lives, but that we're building up the nation by building up its citizenry. Uh, Dr. Walter, I want to come back to you, um, because I think that one of the arguments that 
tends to come up on a regular basis within the, the black community is that we don't have a party to call our own. I mean, I know we don't have the members to create a viable third party, as everybody was calling for after uh, Jesse Jackson uh, unsuccessfully ran for the nomination. It was like, well, let's just do our own party. Is that what we should start thinking about in terms of trying to pull our power base together to make sure our issues are first and foremost on the agenda? If I could see that there were African-American Republicans interested in solving and working on the issues that most African-Americans face, I I would definitely get behind something like that. However, I think there is a need for what we've seen at the federal level and even strengthening it at the state and local level are caucuses within whichever party that are actually articulating issues that lead to equal justice for all, that lead to having equity in employment, having equity in business ownership, having equity in access to schools. Um, those, those issues are quite pertinent, and, it, and frankly, it would set the tone for politicians and political activists across the spectrum to actually speak to what actually promotes freedom, to actually grow what's happening in our communities to enable people to have higher quality standard of life. And so those are the things we need to do instead of being distracted by these kinds of red herrings that we see uh, employed like like critical race theory as as a non-topic in our public school system. So let's get on that. I want to go to a caller first, and then once we... uh answer the caller, then I do want to talk about critical race theory and the way it has become a major issue and a rallying call. I mean, it really is a dog whistle. We're going to talk about that after we speak to Al from Columbia. Hey, Dr. K, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, great. You know, I have um, I have several thoughts on, on what's going on or what's happened. When, when you look at Terry McAuliffe, to me, he represents a part of the old guard because when you look at him, you think about him, he was, you know, tied in with the Clintons and things of that nature. I think one of the issues that, that the Democratic Party has is that, you know, we don't, from what, I, from what I'm seeing, there are some, some, some African-American women that are running for various offices across the country, and I'm very happy to see that. But we need to have more candidates, I mean, more viable candidates. One thing that I've noticed, too, is that the Democratic Party does not stick together as like the Republican Party does. Um, And I believe that we also should be doing our research on each individual candidate. Because if you look at it, Joe Manchin, in my mind, is not really a Democrat. And the reason why I say this is that he is the only Democrat that, when Trump was in office, had a very friendly relationship with Trump. And if you look at every, if you look at his history with the coal mining and everything that he kind of vetoes and doesn't want to talk about, are, mu- are many of the things that will put put money in his pocket, as you know, and deny others opportunity. And the last thing I want to say with the critical race theory, I mean, that really, to me, that that I mean, white people don't want to acknowledge, or I guess they don't want their kids to have to deal with some of the sins of their father. But according to what I've read in the Bible, that's, that's kind of how it goes. But I will also say this. If they, if they don't want us teaching critical race theory, then what happens to Black History Month? How long before they come to that? All right. Thank you so much, Al. So, so then, uh, Dr. Sharon, let's talk about that. Critical race theory on the table. I mean, it actually has become, as I noted, a dog whistle. There's this, this fear that really white children, they're not really talking about black and brown children, they're talking about white children, mm-hmm. are being taught to, to feel guilty about their history. This is the way they're framing it. Uh, we, we tried to push back. Those of us who are involved said, no, 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 critical race theory is not even taught in high school or middle school. I mean, it's a framework that's used in law schools. But they, they kept going with it, and it began with critical race theory. And really what they pulled in there was, let's get rid of Dr. King. Let's get rid of Cesar Chavez. Let's stop talking about Susan B. Anthony. Like they pulled in all histories outside of what they call the strict American history version, which I would argue is really white American history. Right. And, I mean, we even just, again, had this discussion in class. Whenever I come on your show, it seems like, we just have had a discussion in class about something we're talking about. But we had just talked about this in class yesterday, and uh, one of the students pointed out that as far as with critical race theory, 
she was saying that, you know, some people are saying that they're traumatized by hearing about what happened. She said, but think about the fact that our ancestors are the people who actually lived it. And so if you don't even want to hear about it, I mean, think about the fact that this is the way people actually lived. And not just in the past, but even in the present, we have so many issues with with race. A lot of people were shocked after the George Floyd incident. But in minority communities, we've been complaining about police brutality and police abuse for years, and no one really wanted to hear it. And then every once in a while, something will happen like a Rodney King situation or a George Floyd situation. The people will get so enlightened, and then once that stops being in the news, then all of a sudden it's as if no one wants to talk about it. But, I mean, with critical race theory, it's under attack all around the nation uh, in, in a number of different states, and you're not supposed to talk about race, but... As the caller said, at first it starts with something like critical race theory, but the next thing you know, then they'll be coming after Black History Month or, you know, or who knows what else. And so, or Martin Luther King's federal, uh, federal holiday. So who knows what else? So when you see movements like this, we can't be naive. We have to mobilize and make sure that even though people don't want race to be taught, it, it needs to be taught. As a matter of fact, even when I, I remember even when I was in school, we learned a little bit about slavery. We didn't learn the truth about it, but a little bit. And then we learned a little bit about Rosa Parks and maybe Martin King, and then that was it. And it's as if there was no other contribution for African Americans to history or to politics. So it's something that really you're doing a disservice to young people by not teaching them the truth. Now, I would agree with you. Dr. Walter, I know you engage quite a bit with, with this discussion around critical race theory, and we've talked about it in, in multiple arenas. I think if we can step back, can you just maybe one more time, Dr. Walter, for the people in the back of the room, can you explain exactly what is critical race theory? Because I think people are still a little confused about it. Yes, yeah, so this, this is a phrase that, that comes out of the debates in Harvard Law School in the early 1980s over the limitations of these civil rights laws, uh, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the Fair Housing Act of the 1960s. And so Derek Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw discuss how do you actually generate support in the legal community around expansive embrace of the ideas that everyone should be treated fairly and have equal access to the resources of the society. And so it comes down to three principles. The first is that race is socially constructed, that it's in fact just something we use as a shorthand to assign resources through the legal structures that, that we inherit. And so race is not real. It is not biological. It is not destiny. The way people are arguing critical race theory teaches that the white ch children are, are inherently wrong or racist. That's the opposite of critical race right. theory. The second piece of this is then that there is a way that we can study and understand the way that these ideas took shape in the law so that we can see people made choices again and again and again over decades to reinforce the sense that there are white advantages and black disadvantages that are entrenched in our legal decisions. And so how do we actually identify those and actually dismantle them? So that's the second piece. So there are structures that, that have emerged in the law that would have to then be addressed. And then finally, that there's an imperative to do that work, to actually take on the challenge of dismantling inequality. So those three pieces make up what the, the core of critical race theory. Now, Dr. Walter, I'm going to have to stop you there, but I want to put a pin in it because we're coming right back to this. When we come back, stay with us for more on this discussion, folks. We've got to talk about Jersey. We've got to talk about the, what happened in New York. We've got to talk about black women just really winning across the country. We'll talk about all of that when we return. An issue in the governor's race here in Virginia. Getting back to the basics of teaching children, not teaching them critical race theory. And, uh, and, and what is critical race theory? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't understand it that much, but it's something that I don't, what little bit that I know I don't care for. And, and what have you heard that, that you don't, well, that you I'm don't not, like? Well, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't have that much knowledge on it, but okay. it's something that I'm not, that I don't care for. I'm Shine Boggs, a junior multi-platform production major. I'm an intern here working at WEAA, and I believe the support that the station gives me is an essential to my development as a student and worker. Donate at WEAA.org and call in at 410-319-8888.
Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead. Folks, we are in the middle of our new segment called Pancakes and Politics, and we named it that thanks to Coach Chauncey Whitehead, who put the idea in my head that we need to pull up a chair to the kitchen table and have a conversation that from politics with pancakes so that everybody might join in. We're joined by two professors, Dr. Walter Greeson from McAllister College and Dr. Sharon Wright Austin out of the University of Florida. We have a historian and a political scientist taking us through this. Thank you so much, Dr. Greeson and Dr. Austin, for staying with us. You're welcome. So let's talk New Jersey. So I know they haven't called it yet, um, but but Democrats are shaking right now with what's going on in, in New Jersey because it's a lot closer and there's a chance that the, the governor's race might lean toward having a Republican in, in the final count. Well, what's your, your thoughts on that, Dr. Austin? Well, now, that one is more um, really shocking than Virginia. Virginia kind of fluctuates between being a red state and a blue state. But New Jersey is, is solidly a blue state, usually, and they usually elect Democratic governors. And so it looks like the Democrat might pull it out, but... It's too close to call, and this was supposed to be a race that he was supposed to pretty much win by a large margin. So this, again, is it really is a prelude to what is probably going to happen in the midterm elections coming up. So it's a wake-up call to the Democratic Party and also to the Republican Party as well because they did relatively well last night, and I think the Republicans are taking from last night's results that people are motivated, people are Supporting Republican candidates, um, if they focus on the right issues, it could really um, generate a high turnout, which was the case in the Virginia governor's election. Uh, even New Jersey is vulnerable, so they're taking that as a sign that Republican leadership is needed. And also, I, I would think, I haven't really heard much about President Trump, if he said anything, but he probably is encouraged by last night's results as well, because this means that if and when he decides to run in 2024, he thinks that there are people out there who are going to just run to, in droves to vote for him. So I, I think, you know, we could read a lot out of what happened to New Jersey because that wasn't supposed to happen. It was completely unpredicted that this would be a race that's as close as it's been, and it, it still is too close to call. Well, now, I, when you kind of compared it with, with Virginia, we know that the Virginia results uh, fit a long-time pattern, right? Because in Virginia, you've had in 11 of the past 12 governor's races, the incumbent president's party has lost. I mean, Virginia seems to always go the opposite of whoever the incumbent president is. So they, they do swing red, blue. I mean, I mean, in some ways, Virginia actually might be more purple than we want to admit. But, but New Jersey, Dr. Walter, is a concern because if we see the blue start to flip red, what's going to happen when we get to 2022? This is very concerning. I think, that, and I thank you for the question, because, you know, I, I know that place inside yes. out, upside down. <laughs> and so when you go and you look at these numbers, yes, you're, you're looking at the larger urban municipalities that are, that are going to carry uh, Governor Murphy to reelection, which will be the first for the Democrats since 1977. New Jersey had not reelected a Democratic governor for, you know, more than 30 years, creeping up on 40 years. So that, that process basically is not as automatic as everyone would like to believe it is. And particularly the parts of New Jersey I know best, there are extraordinary numbers of people who are entrenched local municipal leaders, even school board leaders, who are insurrectionists, who are people who supported January 6th, put money into it, organized buses and vans, that are the strongest supporters of President Trump and made this race a referendum on critical race theory in their schools, and they wanted to uproot Governor Murphy because he stood for equity and inclusion for people from all backgrounds, from all religions, from all different kinds of language groups. He made in New Jersey a much more inclusive state than Chris Christie had done. And so this was the backlash within the Garden State, that there are places that I know intimately where there are, like remnants of the Ku Klux Klan, where there are remnants of militia organizations where people stack, stockpile weapons. I've done a lot of work on white nationalism in that state, and it is deep in the heart of the state. It's a lot of these folks who love the Tony Soprano series and believe in the kind of mythology of the tough guy. And so those folks got together last night, and that's what made the race very close. 
Now, Dr. Austin, I, I want to share something with you. So I, I took a look at Sean King. Sean King, of course, who is actively involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot of controversy around Sean King. I bring him mm -hmm. to the table because of a, a tweet that he put out, and I wanted to ask you to answer it. He said the main problem for Democrats could be summed up in one quick question. If you just had 10 seconds to tell someone what Democrats stand for and stand against without using the word Trump, could you do it? And he's making mm. the argument that nobody can, like nobody can sum up what the Democrats stand for and stand against if you remove Trump. Because we know McAuliffe really ran against Trump. He went full bore on Trump. Mm -hmm. What does the Democratic Party actually stand for right now? I think that's an interesting tweet as far as what exactly, you know, asking the question of what do they what does the party stand for? Because that's something you really do need to get out there, your message, especially right. with the kind of people who traditionally, you know, carry the Democratic candidates and the kind of people who pretty much led to the election of Joe Biden and then also Barack Obama, and then also that didn't turn out and that resulted in Hillary Clinton losing. Young people need to know what the message is. People of color need to know what the message is. Female voters. And so I think we kind of have ideas about what they stand for in terms of being pro-choice or economic growth or maybe environmental issues. But really, I don't think that's really clear. And that's how candidates like last night, you know, Republican opponents were able to come in and even talk about something like critical race theory, which most people aren't even familiar with what it is and can't really define it. But when they hear it, a lot of people are really, you know, a lot of white people, I guess, are really against it. Uh, and that's why Republican candidates are able to come in and bring up those types of issues and really heighten people's fears about certain things, which really just is it, unnecessary. But it's a winning strategy for them because I don't think the Democratic Party really does a good enough job of putting their message out there of what exactly their platform is. Okay, well, that, that's a bit of a concern. So before I go to Dr. Walter, then let me ask you from the opposite. What do the Republicans stand for? He said the Republicans, if you just simply said, what do they stand for and against, it's very clear. They aren't for police reform. They aren't for equal pay. They aren't for reparations. They aren't for Medicare <laughs> for all. Like, they're very clear what it is in terms of they want the government out of their life and they want their guns and they, they want to be yeah. able to have body autonomy. Now, some of that's tongue-in-cheek or said tongue-in-cheek. But but that does sum up the issues, and it seems to be kind of one through line with the party. As as a political scientist, from where you sit, what does the Republican Party stand for? Yeah, I think that reminds me of something. I think your listeners, if you haven't heard of it, you should try to do like a, a search on YouTube of a man named Lee Atwater. He was a strategist for uh, several mm -hmm. Republican candidates, including George Herbert Walker Bush, and he came up with a Southern strategy. Um, and it's a really interesting clip on YouTube. I'm not sure where you could find it, but if you just type in his name, Lee Atwater, Water, you can find it. And he said something about how it used to be in the past you could just say, oh, we don't want, we want segregation. We just don't want, he used the N-word, we don't want black people in the neighborhood. He said, but then later, by the 1970s, you couldn't say that anymore. So you had to focus on things like quotas and busing. And nowadays, you know, they, there's an emphasis on critical race theory and, you know, Issues like uh, police reform, issues like using the word liberal to describe your opponent. So those are sort of like cold words. And I think Republicans do a good job of using those cold words and those cold phrases and heightening people's fears about certain things. And that way it really motivates people in their communities <clears throat> to vote because we know that Republicans tend to be pro-life, pro-gun. Um, we know that they tend to talk about fiscal responsibility, wasteful spending, um, and we know that those are the things that they focus on, economic growth and, and job creation. Those are the things that they focus on. And they, they don't really talk very much about health care because they're not in favor of universal health care. But they talk about the fact that, oh, well, we, it's not that we are opposed to health care. It's just that we just are so opposed to the cost and how are we going to pay for all of providing universal health care to everyone. So I think we do know what their message is, but I really think in our society we do have to focus on the issue of race because really whether we want to admit it or not, race is always an issue. Even when it's not explicitly right. stated, it's still a case in which subtle uh, race issues always come to the forefront, and that was obvious last night. Let me ask you, Dr. Walter, where do you fall with that? Because in just 
asking, I know when, when people, we ask people about their political parties. I mean, I, I know that there's some topics we don't take to the table. Trump makes it hard to talk about politics. But I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. Well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I, I, I'm really wrestling with, with this tweet from, from Sean King, as someone who is an independent. And I'm like, I tend to look at the issues and not necessarily at uh, who the candidate is. Where are the issues that are in line with what I believe America should should be like, particularly for, for people of color and for marginalized groups? Yeah, I like the way you said it from, from the Republican perspective. It was about what they're against. They don't yeah. believe in women's right to choose. They don't believe in a strong federal government um, outside of the military defense budget. Those are things that are the opposite of what Democrats stand for, which is really freedom and justice for all. That's the core of what the Democratic Party has become, particularly among its core base in African-American communities, stemming back to the civil rights movement. Freedom and justice for all. That believes defending the woman's right to choose. It defends the kind of quality and dignity of life for those who are disabled or senior citizens. It believes that we're able to do big, major infrastructure projects like, like this Build Back Better agenda, that we're trying to make the United States one of, one of the best countries ever to exist. It's not make America great again. It's basically keep America becoming better for every generation. Mm, I like that. And so those kinds of points are just antithetical to really the Confederacy being the heart of what the Republican Party has become. That if there's any dignified treatment of black people, that's abhorrent. That cannot be tolerated. That violates religious freedom. And so the the core issue of dismantling people of color, like what happens to Hispanic and Latino immigrants, um, casting out people and attacking China as being responsible for the uh, coronavirus. This whole conversation is about we are an Anglo-Saxon nation dedicated to liberal limited government, and we're going to stomp on anyone who challenges the idea that white supremacy should be questioned. Now, I want to come back, uh, Dr. Walsh. You know, let me go to Jeff first, but I want to follow up on something that you said because I'm trying to figure out whether whether the Democrats' problem is that they're, they're not all on message, right? Because you laid it out very clearly, but, but if you ask people and people who are running, you get a whole slew of things, which is when you simply said freedom and justice for all, which we got to talk about that. Let me go to Jeff first from Pasadena. Jeff, how are you? Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Thanks for calling. Well, see, the problem with you Democrats, like, like you were just asking, what's the problem? See, you all keep calling us white Donald Trump supporters racist. That's all we hear. Jeff, Jeff, I have a quick question for you, because I, I want to be clear when you say y'all Democrats, uh, I think I'm the only one that actually said a party, and I said independent. That's one. Number two is that I did not use the word racist at all. We're talking about the Republican Party and how it changed from Frederick Douglass to where it is today. I want to hear your point, but no one called you a racist. No one actually said they were a Democrat on the call. Well, when, when you have elections come up, mm -hmm. that's all you hear from the Democrat okay. candidates. Us white Donald Trump supporters are all racist. You had an earlier caller talking about Black History Month. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, the guy who appropriated more money for HBCUs in four years than Barack Obama did in eight years, you know, that big racist Donald Trump, he had a, a Republican-controlled Congress the first two years he was president. I didn't see them going after Black History Month. And if you want to talk about racist voters, uh, let, let's look at this. In 2008, Barack Obama ran for president, a black guy. Record number of turnout of black people. 96% of black people voted for him. And in 2012, 96% of the black vote. When was the last time a white person running for president got 96% of the white vote? And then 2016, you didn't have a black person on the ticket for the Democrats. Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine, two white people, gee, Turnout for blacks was low. They didn't show up. That's not true. And then, and then in 2020, there was a black person on the ticket as VP, Kamala Harris. Ooh, a whole bunch of blacks turned out that, again. That is to vote. absolutely. Now, thank you so much, Jeff. I, I appreciate everything you're saying. Um, but I, I want to kind of separate what Jeff was saying because one thing that he said that's absolutely not true, Dr. Walson, is that black folks show up in record numbers. I mean, one of the things about black people in this country historically is that we get out and vote. We don't just vote when there's a black person on the ballot. If that was true, then JFK wouldn't have been elected. If that was true, then Bill Clinton wouldn't have got pushed over the edge. We don't just show up when black people are on the ballot. We show up and participate in the process. 
I want to have you comment on that, Dr. Walter, and then come back to, to Dr. Sharon. No, it's completely unrepresentative, and, and he doesn't know the history very well. And so this question about do black people vote for white candidates all the time, all the time across the country, because it is a majority white country. The issue that he's ignoring and trying to obscure is the fact that white voters, the majority of white voters, have gotten more and more polarized where they will not support women Democrats. They will not support uh, folks who disagree with them on, on questions about fundamentally how the country can move forward. They are in favor of the status quo, and they don't want anything to change, and they refuse to acknowledge problems like what we saw with the killing of George Floyd or the killing of Breonna Taylor. Um, That was really the wedge issue that CRT was created to break back on, was that we had momentum for white Americans, especially white women, to stand up and stand in solidarity with the people of color across the country through 2020. The CRT issue was then raised after the insurrection on January 6th, to attempt to bring white voters back into the Republican Party. Dr. Sharon, I want to come to you and just have you answer that as well, because I think that that, that to me is something that people have, have created, and it's just not true that black people only vote for black people, because we would always be home, because we don't have that many candidates who are running for those type of offices. If you pull out Barack Obama, we've still been showing up at the ballot. Absolutely. And then also, I'm thinking about a U.S. Senate race in Alabama a few years ago when Doug Jones was running against Roy Moore. And there was a very high turnout in that election. And the reason that Doug Jones was able to win was because mostly of black voters, but especially because of the turnout of black women voters. And the same can be said in 2020 in Georgia. The reason that Biden was able to win Georgia is because not only because of black female voters and black men as well, but because black female activists like Stacey Abrams and others who were involved in a lot of different um, efforts. So it's not a case in which we just vote for turn out to vote if there's a black candidate there. I think we are encouraged when we see black candidates who are, are people that we consider to be good candidates who we support. But I think when we were talking earlier about just Winsome, um, in, in uh, the Virginia Lieutenant right. Governor, Winsome Sears. Um, <clears throat> Sears, now that was a case in which she's a black woman, but we were just talking about the fact that a black woman's political organization that we're a member of didn't, uh, didn't support her because of her views. So it's not a case in which black people just automatically vote for a black person. It has to be the kind of person who has the types of, of positions on issues that we agree with. Now, I want to lay down three things, and I want to have you respond to it before we go to the caller, Dr. Walter, because there is, there's another lie that's out here that, that you know, Donald Trump saved HBCUs, right? So here are three mm-hmm. things I want to lay out. Number one, when Donald Trump signed the Future Act in 2019 that made a significant allocation of, of federal funds for HBCUs, he was actually not actively involved in the legislation before he hit his desk for signature. Number two, HBCUs received funding under the same program during President Barack Obama's time in the White House. He did not save HBCUs. And number three, which I think is really important, when we did the calculations around the federal funding from PolitiFact, the numbers showed there was very little change in funding between the Obama years and the first year under Trump. That's absolutely right. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We're on the same page. That was very good. Because I just think that when people talk about, oh, Donald Trump came, well, you know what, Donald Trump said it. And here right. that's, that's what he said. And if you fact right. check it, you'll see that you'll find exactly what you just said, which is that he did support the legislation, but he did not actually have a hand in putting it together. No. It was something that was on his desk and he signed it, which, I, of course, will give him credit for, for having done that. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean necessarily that fact alone that he isn't a, a racist. I'm not saying the man is a racist. I'm just saying that he should not be surprised when he is accused of that simply because of his own behavior and his own words and his own actions. But that is a myth. And if you really fact-check things rather than listen to what someone says, you'll find that a lot of stereotypes that are out there, and one myth that's out there is that he gave more to black colleges. Um, and he even wants to insinuate that he gave more to HBCUs than any other president in American history. And that certainly isn't true. And if you don't believe it, then you can just fact-check it, check it and find out for yourself. And it's called the Strengthening Historically Black 
colleges and universities program. That gives Congress an avenue to give grants to HBCUs for decades, with or without Trump coming back or not. The money, no matter who's sitting in the big chair at the big table, the avenue is already made available. So, Dr. Walker, I want to come back to you before we go to Donna. So, no one ever questions, as Zora Simone said on Facebook, she's like, no one ever questions white people when they vote for white candidates. <laughs> the only people that get questioned about our loyalty, about who we're in line with, is black voters. There's no privacy in the election booth for black folks. Uh, I, I, wrote, yeah, I just want you to kind yeah. of explore that a bit. Yes, sir. I, I wrote about this. Uh, I've written several essays, but probably the most compelling one actually came out in the first year after Obama was elected. So this is uh, 2009. And we were talking about his agenda and rebuilding the economy and, and addressing kind of the, the huge needs that, that were created by the, the George W. Bush presidency. And so in doing that, I talked about the shift from being a commodity to a commander. This was the title of the essay, From Commodity to Commander. And for African Americans, the fundamental approach to understanding our existence in the United States, legally, psychologically, politically, is that African Americans require white control, white ownership, white management, white leadership. That's the core assumption, because it's rooted in the processes of enslavement and segregation. That core idea is, is quite difficult to remove from the minds of the general public and from our institutions. So that when you had the election of, say, Doug Wilder in Virginia as a black governor, or the emergence of a Barack Obama or a Jesse Jackson as a possible candidate for president, the success that we see with, with the current vice president, these are all running contrary to countless decisions that assume that black people should always be inferior in following positions. And that's why those questions come about, well, who's actually leading black people? Because it can't be their own agency. It can't be their own genius. It can't be their own intellect that is shaping this agenda and animating the way that, they, that we operate politically. And so that fundamental dehumanization of how we're seen in American society has to be uprooted. And that's part of the process of what we're engaged in with, with shows like this and the conversations we have online. Is It's about empowering not just African Americans to take action and, and determine for themselves the best conditions for their lives, but to then back off of this assumption that someone else, typically white men, but also white women, have to be somehow be pulling the puppet strings or be in charge somehow of what African Americans think or believe or say. And so that process of, of uprooting that and recognizing our fundamental humanity, that's, that's the work that can never stop. And it, it's the kinds of assumptions that are always being re rehearsed, especially on cable news, right. that somehow there should be this critique about black people that's special and separate from everybody else. It's, it's deeply poisonous, and, and I'm glad that we have the chance to expose it here. Let's get Donna on the phone from Baltimore. Donna, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And I'm and, 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 uh, and enjoying your guest. Um, your last um, uh, guest speaker said something in line with what I had to do in my neighborhood association, which my community is mixed, but my neighborhood association was Padami White, and there were very few blacks who were active. And I had to walk away because, the, it, you know, the, the perception, you know, they're all Democrats and we're, we're progressives and whatever, but the perception is that they, can, they, they like your ideas, they like your programs, your, your whatever, but you're not going to be able to lead at a higher position or anything else. So they always stalemated um, myself. So I finally said, you know, it's time for me to walk away and, you know, do something different um, that really represents my community. Because when you have whites who don't see you in the same light, but they profess to be progressives and Democrats. Right. Um, but my point is, um, my, my point is, the Democrat, and I've been saying this for years, and I think, Dr. K, you remember me saying this, that there are two parties in the Democratic Party. There's the white male Democratic Party, mm -hmm. and then the, uh, the, the, and there's the party of peop other people. Because the white males still dominate and control that party, and they dictate what we do or how that party runs or whatever, which is why, if you look at Maryland, we ended up with a Republican governor. 
because white males still, you know, if they want to put a black male candidate as a governor, they decide to do it. And I have been saying this for years, that I always saw two parties when I worked for the government, the white uh, in, in, in white staff members. They will always say, well, we're, we're Democrats and stuff, but they always show, you always listen to them, hear them say, right. they talk about themselves and what they can do. Mm-hmm. And they always left out the, 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 what black women have done in the party and what black men have done and other people of color. So I've always looked at this party mm-hmm. as two different parties, white male run party. For, um, the, it's a split party. The party with pe- other people, black women and other uh, minorities and, with, and, and other parties that's dominated and controlled by white males. And I wanted your guest to talk about it because your last guest just said okay, it. Okay, let, let's exactly get into how it. I feel. Okay, no problem. Thank you, Donna. Let, let's go into that, uh, Dr. Sharon. Um, and I know we're going to have to finish this on the other side of the break, but let, let's start with that discussion. So just what what Donna was saying, that there are really two parties within the Democratic Party. I'm, I would argue, Sharon, that there, there are multiple parties. I mean, well, under this Democratic banner, it seems like everything that could fit just gets stuck under this idea of being a Democrat. Right. I think there's, there are multiple uh, dimensions to the party. There's still a small white working class population. There are uh, different people of color, and you can't just lump people of color just in one category. There are black Democrats who have different uh, interests in uh, African and Caribbean Democrats who have different interests from Latino Democrats. Um, and then you also have Latino people, uh, Mexican Democrats versus Puerto Rican Democrats who have different issues. And then you have your progressives and then you still have a segment of, of conservative Democrats. So, I mean, there's a lot of diversity with, there's more diversity, I would say, within the Democratic Party, especially because of race and ethnicity, but also because of ideology. And people just have this tendency to assume that Democrats think a certain way, but really there's so much ideological diversity within the party. All right, folks, we're going to leave it here for just a moment. When we come back, we have Lev holding on. Uh, I'll be joined by our guest. I want to get into talking more about what's happening within the black community. And I want to cover this article with you that talks about the black women are voted the most undesirable women to date. I want to talk about all of this and more in our segment called Pancakes and Politics, coined by uh, Chauncey Whitehead. Hold on. We'll be right back after the break.